On Wednesday, April 8th, Owensboro Health Regional Hospital announced for the first time that eight of its staff members had tested positive for the novel coronavirus known as COVID-19. And for the hospital that serves as the regional hub for the virus, it was an anticipated announcement where Dr. Michael Kelly, the hospital's chief medical officer, also discussed the supply of PPEs, ventilators, and the overall morale of the staff of more than 4,000 people. So stay with us. This is Inquire. From the Messenger Inquirer, I'm Don Wilkins. As I said in the intro, I'll be talking with Dr. Michael Kelly, the chief medical officer at Owensboro Health Regional Hospital. I'd reached out to the hospital earlier in the week to see about an interview for the podcast uh, to get an update on how the hospital was doing uh, with its PPEs, its ventilators, uh, and just to see how they were coping in the midst of trying to treat this virus. But then Wednesday, I got an impromptu phone call that the hospital had eight staff members who had contracted the disease. And so it went from there. And here's that conversation. Hi, just a second. They are wrapping up another call. Okay. I'll put you on hold for one more minute. Okay. Okay, I've got Dr. Michael Kelly with me. How are you, Don? How are yeah. you doing? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm doing Good. doing okay so far. Uh, so I caught Don totally off guard. Excuse me. And I wanted to squeeze him in real quick and make sure that we give him the latest news that we're releasing. So yeah. he's, he's got the release, but Dr. Kelly can tell you a little bit more. Okay. Sure. So, so, so is, uh, go ahead, go ahead. Was, so is, uh, so Dr. Dufresne, is he also in with, with this conversation as well? He, he's not in the room. We've got a few little things that we're dealing with, so it's just me. Okay. Okay, so... Uh, Dr. Kelly, so what is your role there at the at the uh, at the hospital right now? Uh, I'm the vice president of medical affairs. Okay. Uh, and I'm a physician, and so basically, I'm the hospital chief medical officer, and Fran is the system chief medical officer. I see. Okay. So, um, so this latest uh, release, uh, which I don't know that anybody will find surprising, uh, that you have staff who are uh, who've been diagnosed with the coronavirus. Uh, and I know there's, you know, you guys have limited some of the information, uh, I guess because of HIPAA and so forth. But uh, can yeah. you designate? Are the are the majority of them are they nurses or are they just a, a, a variety of staff? Yeah, I can't I can't even give that. You know, it's it's kind of the, the nuts and the bolts here a little bit. Uh, is eight employees? Um, you know. We employ 4,500, so we can put that into perspective. Not something that we would not expect. This is, you know, we're a healthcare system. We're in an area that, uh, as, as well as across the country, that has sort of community spread of this. Um, those eight people are all home doing well, and we are uh, taking appropriate measures, as we always have, to continue to protect all of our team members. And I know it's a little different. You know, we, we ran a story today about, um, about how grocery stores, you know, are taking precautions and how they're part of the front line. Um, but your staff is very much part of the front line, and 
and very much used to uh, dealing with diseases uh, of all sorts, contagious to non-contagious. Um, but obviously this is a different kind of, of virus that spreads very easily. So did, did your staff, I mean, did, was this something that, that you've seen them become fearful of at all or they treated it differently um, versus any other, uh, you know, disease or, you know, whatever it is they may be facing on a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, it's, it's a good question. I think that the, the issue that we have is this is obviously a new disease for all of us. So there's pieces of this where there are unknowns, and those types of things can make people have more of a healthy level of concern about what they need to do. We have guidance from the Centers for Disease Control and from other areas of this country as well as internationally that have kind of dealt with this, and we still know, you know, we learn new things all the time. I think people... Some people, as in any situation, are more nervous than others or more concerned than others, but I think everybody's handling it very well, and I'm very appreciative of the team spirit that I'm seeing around Owensboro Health. You know, we still know that if you wash your hands with soap, that it destroys this virus, that alcohol uh, can destroy this virus, that social distancing works, that staying at home and not being the... Uh, person that spreads this in any way, that uh, respiratory hygiene, uh, coughing into your elbow, um, all those things help prevent the spread of this. So we're just following that. We have, you know, our mask policy here under appropriate circumstances. We go up on the level of mask and the level of personal protective equipment that we need for the situation we're in, and we are blessed enough to have a, a supply right now that meets the demands that we have. Okay. Yeah, that was kind of my next kind of question of how are you guys doing on on PPE uh, in, in regards to you know the number of staff that you that you have uh, you know who, who have to use it on a day-to-day -day basis uh, we're doing well right now we instituted our universal mask policy for people in uh, clinical facing areas so people that are more in direct patient care versus others who are in more uh, non-clinical areas um, with policies that are extended use of masks or limited reuse of masks. We've come up with ways to reprocess or re-sterilize some of the N95 respirator masks so that we can reuse them and they're in perfectly good condition. Instead of being able to use them for a day, we can use them for, uh, in our current process, almost 15 days. Um, so we've done very well in being innovative and uh, trying to find the best practice to maximize what we have and so far so good so have you guys are you, have you guys gone to strictly had to go strictly to the homemade mass now or do you still have the the traditional disposal? we have not uh, at all we still have traditional surgical face masks with some of them have ear loops some of them have ties uh for the most part uh that is what we're using uh the, some of the home face masks in certain areas are being used uh, but it's not out of necessarily necessity. It's out of the risk that that person is in that environment. So we try to use some of the, the other masks um, for areas that, again, are more clinically facing. Sure. Now, as far as, uh, you know, the, the rooms that you have available, uh, I mean, I, I, are you pretty much uh, using any available room, or do you have part of the hospital that's just designated? Uh, yeah. For this? So we have designated, so our critical care unit is 32 beds, 
and the types of rooms, although not a necessity, but felt to be very good for diseases that are potentially airborne, which when this disease gets aerosolized, you can get it in the air, versus droplet precautions. But we have turned all, I believe, except for one of those rooms into negative pressure on the, our intensive care unit or critical care unit. The fourth floor of the hospital has become a floor that's really for COVID patients, and we have teams of physicians working in tandem and with additional people to minimize the number of people taking care of these patients, minimize the number of times we need to go in and out of the room, minimize the number of lab draws and other things that happen, again, to preserve that protective equipment. And we have 24 rooms on there and are expanding to the second part of that floor with negative pressure rooms there as well, which would be an additional 24 rooms. And that's part of that surge plan as we sort of say, okay, we're at a point now, we're good, we have the equipment to make these rooms negative pressure, and then we can make those additional rooms. So on that floor, single rooms would be 48 on that floor, which is the fourth floor, and on the uh, uh, critical care unit, uh, 32 beds negative pressure. And then we have additional uh, negative pressure rooms kind of uh, sparsely, uh, a couple on each floor throughout the hospital. We have the ability to turn any of those rooms into negative pressure, and right now we do have in the queue additional negative pressure machines to do that. Uh, we're doing additional rooms in our ER so that part of the ER will be all negative pressure uh, sort of rooms, and we can keep people that need that kind of separate from the other population there uh, if we need to. And then we've been able to do some in our maternity services area as well. So we're just deciding where we think the biggest need is for now, looking at what a potential surge might do, and trying to keep people kind of cohorted in certain areas or high, high, uh, you know, high test areas where we're going to see patients, ED, critical care, and uh, one main floor of the hospital. Now, uh, of course, the other issue uh, is the is the availability of, of ventilators. How are you guys doing with 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 ventilators? Yeah, so ventilator-wise, we have a dashboard that we look at every day. Um, I won't give you kind of raw numbers, but we're in a good spot right now. We have plenty of ventilators available. Again, we're not in the surge yet. Um, we are in an uh, area where we are sort of have patients in the hospital that have the diagnosis, have patients in the hospital that have the diagnosis that are on ventilators, but right now we're in a good spot. Additionally, we have looked at our anesthesia machines, which are ones that can be turned into ventilators, which is what we have in our operating room. So we have additional ones there and are working to turn those. Uh, we have ones on order called go-to ventilators, additional ones that are coming. So right now we are not uh, in any concerned state over the amount of ventilators that we have. But again, we don't know where the surge uh, could come when exactly it could come, the size of that surge, and so we still want to push all those social distancing and all those other pieces to really lower the peak of patients and spread out what we see over time so that we will never get into a point where we have don't have enough beds for people and we don't have enough ventilators for people. So that's the idea behind that, and right now we're doing just fine. We're doing well. Um, and Vaughn, yes. If you go to our webpage, we are posting a dashboard with um, a lot of this information down in the news section of the webpage. So we post that about 6 o'clock each night. Okay. I'll give you this morning we had eight, eight ventilators in use and 16 available. We have uh, eight BiPAPs uh, in use, which could uh, be transitioned or uh, changed into ventilators, and 21 available. And then we had something called a high-flow pole or heated high-flow air, 
which we had three in use and five of those available, and we had an additional 10 of those on order. But they are on the, on the dashboard. But I would, you know, you can certainly quote those. People like numbers, but in general, we're not at a place where we're saying, wow, we're, we're, we're anywhere near running out or have concerns over that. So the, the folks who are, who, are being, who are being tested, I know the governor put out their, their tears to this, and, uh, and I, think, mm-hmm. I, think they're, I think right now, like, age 60 and up is kind of part of that first tier. But I'm, I'm just kind of wondering about, you know, for somebody to get a test. Now, I mean, is it more than just age? I mean, if somebody says, you know, they, they test positive, and then they start telling you guys in the health department, where all they've been, uh, and then and then the contacts are made. Um, do those people get tests, or are they just told, depending on how close they were to that person, just to quarantine until they start yeah. showing some real symptoms? So some are actually, we, we have some stuff we're going to put up about that, and we have been pushing that message uh, pretty heavily. In an instance where you don't have unlimited tests and you don't have a quick turnaround on tests, um, the idea is that you would want to test those people most at risk for bad outcomes from this disease. And this, this is sort of know-before-you-go stuff that we have on our website. And some of that is the over 60 with comorbidities, or if you're younger than that uh, with other medical problems. We're not necessarily seeing bad outcomes or concerning features with some younger people. They seem to do well. And, and again, 80-plus percent of people are going to have very mild illness and never need to seek ER or hospital. So the benefit of testing them in that phase is if they have it and you have community spread and they have the symptoms of it, getting them to isolate and do all those other things is is the same treatment that you would do if I knew the test was positive. And so since we don't have unlimited tests and we don't have a quick turnaround to know that, some of the same treatment or what we tell people to do stays the same. There are instances where somebody in a household is positive, and I I would pose it like this, if everybody else in the house then got tested but had symptoms, and they all turned back negative, would you necessarily believe the test? The test is not perfect. You would still want to treat all those symptomatic contacts that are around somebody who's positive as if they were positive based upon what you said. You don't really, the test isn't really the answer at that point. The answer is, hey, just like if you were around your family that all had the flu and you felt like you had the flu, you probably got the flu. So in that sense, we're really looking to try to minimize testing people that it's not going to make a difference in how we treat them. We're trying to treat and test more people that are symptomatic that may have those comorbidities where things could go not as well. We're trying to test more people like healthcare workers so that we have a staff for the hospital, you know, to be able to take care of the people that come in and to know that we're not in an environment where things are, are getting passed around. So we're testing those individuals. We test other individuals from facilities like long-term care, uh, nursing homes, which was the, the genesis of all this back in January in Washington State. Uh, where the first sort of cases, I think on January 20th, were out there in Seattle. And we may test other sort of populations that are in close proximity, a homeless shelter, a prison, other things like that. So you've got to kind of pick, uh, again, how old you are, what comorbidities you have, the likelihood of illness. In the beginning, we were talking about if you travel, that's not as much of an issue to talk about anymore. Um, and then those that are going to make a difference epidemiologically, like something that you're going to say, if I knew that this person was positive, then I'm going to do something different about where I house them, how I keep them away from other people, things like that. So it gets kind of intricate in figuring it out. Um, I think we're doing a pretty good job of being stewards of the amount of tests we have and the availability, uh, but it's always good to sort of reemphasize those things. And you, you guys are pretty much the, 
the hub uh, for several counties. Um, and of course, Davis County, I guess, being your your largest. So, um, knowing you know, knowing that you guys draw from from so many counties uh, around here, um, and I know you talked about you, you don't feel like you've kind of hit your peak yet. Um, I mean, are are you sort of a, I don't know, uh, cautiously optimistic about your numbers right now? Um, I'm still in the mindset that I have to prepare for the worst case scenario, and if it comes out that everything that we've done uh, doesn't need to be used, then that's fantastic. But I, I don't, you know, I, I don't ever want to sort of let up on some of this uh, that we're talking about because I think then we're we're uh, not doing what we need to do. Um, I would say that. One of the other pieces of this, Don, uh, is that being a hub or being a regional hospital, we've always been that. In this scenario where you have critical care, critical access hospitals that are around you uh, that are not going to have the same sort of resources, the ventilators, the critical care physicians, we need to sort of live our mission. And, you know, uh, I'll state it again, as I have earlier, you know, Owensboro Health exists to heal the sick and improve the health of the communities we serve. So we're trying to live our mission by being that place for all these 14 counties and other institutions around here that are not going to be as equipped to be able to do that. And we're collaborating with them, talking about resources, how we transfer, how people can take care of, where we can help each other out. Uh, is, and this is a good time for us to all be in that mindset and help each other out. Now, have you guys had to, or, or at least put in a plan where you may have to have you know, your medical personnel stay there on, on, on your site uh, where they're not, where they can't go home because of not we enough personnel? We have discussions about that and what it may look like, but we haven't got near that yet. Okay. Uh, but we do have possibilities, and there are search plans with the county and city being talked about and with other uh, businesses in the community about what that might look like for patients that don't have any place to go that need to quarantine or populations that are more at risk or social determinants of health make it so it's very difficult for them to follow what we're asking them to do and for our employees that may be in a situation where we need to find a place for them to be uh, as well. So those are all, they've all been discussed. I won't say there's anything absolutely definitive um, that I can share. And then today, uh Andy Ball, the EMA director, said there's also a plan to, to possibly use the convention center uh, if, if it came to that. Or would you guys be a part of that as well? Yeah, we've, we've been in those discussions, um, but we're, we're definitely a part of that. We have team members that are going to go down there and talk about that, and that would be uh, part of us would be staffing that with the appropriate medical personnel and the types of individuals and what we would end up adding there, and my understanding is that could go up to about 250 beds or so. Wow, okay. And maybe it's a ward-style type of setup. Is it going to be a place for people to go and uh, that are, are, are have mild illness but are, you know, are, are not necessarily needing to be in the hospital but aren't quite ready to be home yet? So we're working on those details, but we are definitely involved in all those discussions and a big part of it. Okay, one last question, and I'll get you out of here, I promise. Uh, from, sure. these, from, these, uh, from this announcement today that you have, you know, staff members um, who who who've now got the virus. What is the the morale? You know, since this uh, has it changed at all? I 
I haven't walked around since actually it's become, and I don't know if every staff member has an awareness, but in general, nobody would be surprised by that. People talk, this is, you know, and, and so I would say I don't think morale has probably changed at all. I think the concerns that everybody would have about something like that uh, will exist, but this is not a, uh, an unexpected event, um, and we just didn't know when it would occur, uh, and here we are. So I don't think I've seen any morale. Morale has actually been uh, something I have not been concerned about, and I've seen more teamwork and collaboration, uh, as I would hope and expect, uh, and it makes me proud. Well, Dr. Kelly, I, I appreciate your time. I know it's precious, and, and thank you for what you're doing out there, okay? Sure. Hope I hope I did okay. You did great. Thank you, sir. And that wraps up our show for this week. I want to thank Dr. Michael Kelly for joining me. To send us questions or provide feedback, email us at newscast at messenger-inquire.com. Remember, you can find us on the Messenger Inquire's website, Facebook, and Apple Podcast, where you can subscribe to Inquire. Until next time, I'm Don Wilkinson. Good day for Inquire. <laughs>